my. People come and go so quickly here. <laughs> Ain't it the truth? Ain't it the truth? <laughs> well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something right. It still isn't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. Mm. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast deep in the heart of Hollywood, as heard on KPFK. 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, up in Oregon on 91.7 FM KYAQ on the Central Coast, and 106.7 FM KSO in Cottage Grove. Also in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on 92.9 FM WLRI Newswatch. In Hawaii on 88.5 FM KAKU, the voice of Maui. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, the Green Renaissance Network, 94.1 FM. In Palinville, New York on 102.9 FM WLPP. And in the Twin Cities of Minneapolis, St. Paul on AM 950 KTNF, the progressive voice of Minnesota. We're also heard streaming coast-to-coast and around the globe every day on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR Revolution 99, Detour Talk, Radio Monterey, and Radio Sputnik, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow says me from bradblog.com. Thank you for joining us today. Boy, oh boy, is it just me or is it getting awfully Nixon around here? <laughs> is that uh, what's the saying that went from zero to Nixon in no time? Yeah, apparently so. Uh, that, of course, is uh, Desi Doyen. How, is your voice holding out here today? Yeah, I'm feeling really much better, but my voice doesn't sound All like right. it. All right, <laughs> well, uh, hang on to it. Do what you can there. Uh, We're going to need you throughout today's show. And, of course, later on, we've got another Green News report coming up for you, uh, highlighting how uh, how U.S. infrastructure, you know, with this Oroville Oroville Dam crisis going on, uh, we've dodged a bullet for the moment out here in California for the moment with the big weather system coming our way. But the the entire uh, mess highlights how. U.S. infrastructure is not ready for climate change. That's among the many things that uh, uh, that damn crisis uh, highlights. We'll get to that. And uh, it's, of course, not just a problem here in the U.S. We've got extreme heat waves once again bringing bringing extreme fire to Australia. So uh, in any event, uh, you know, uh, today's show, it's. I don't even know why I bother to plan these shows. I, you know, I ought to just wait until five minutes before showtime, find out what happens, and then just go with that. Because anything I, anything I plan, if I work on it the night before, if I work on it at the morning of, it's all going to change like every hour. It's insane. And let me just mention here, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Just keep that in mind for today's show. Uh, I'll help you keep it in mind. But let me start here. In 1841. (laughs) Yes, that's where I'm starting. 1841. President William Henry Harrison, the ninth president of the United States, 
Uh, he died in office after just 32 days, the shortest term ever served by a president of the United States. Oh, yeah. Remember that? Yeah. Now, uh, he also had the longest inaugural address of any president uh, on record, and people think it was so cold that they, that's why he got sick and eventually died in office. In any event, he served just 32 days. Donald Trump has not even gotten there yet. But if he makes it uh, without having to resign by next Tuesday, just one more week, he will at least not have served the shortest term in uh, in office ever. Am I getting ahead of myself? <laughs> I, I, I just so he's got to make it one more week. Uh, I think it's February 21, uh, I believe. And uh, he'll make that landmark after that. Of course, all bets are off. Um for now, though, I don't I don't know if it's safe money anymore to bet that he'll make it that far the way that things are going. I, I noticed on uh, well, I had mentioned in any event on Twitter last night that I had sort of assumed for many years that there would never be a worse Republican president than George W. Bush. Boy, did I get that one wrong. Oh, I, the halcyon days of youth. Moral of the story, never misunderestimate the Republican Party. I think that's what we all need to keep in mind, along with it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. Along those lines, uh, Washington Post reports that President Trump was aware that his national security advisor, Michael Flynn, had misled White House officials and Vice President Pence for weeks before he that's a quote weeks before he was uh, before Flynn was forced to resign on Monday night, not long after we went off the air. Although as soon as we went off, I said to you, Des, he's not going to make it uh, until uh, we're tomorrow. on the air tomorrow. You're yeah, right. I knew it. Um, Trump apparently was briefed um, about Michael Flynn uh, by White House counsel Don McGahn that Flint had discussed U.S. sanctions with the Russian ambassador, quote, immediately after Don McGahn was informed that Flynn had misled Vice President Pence. That is all according to the White House press secretary, Sean Spicer, today. Spicer said we've been reviewing and evaluating the issue with respect to General Flynn on a daily basis for a few weeks, trying to ascertain the truth, Spicer said, as if he would know, uh, as if he would recognize what truth actually is. That's Sean Spicer, after all. The comments that Spicer made contradict the impression given by Donald Trump just last Friday aboard uh, Air Force One when he was saying he was not familiar with that Washington Post report that uh, that had revealed that Michael Flynn had not told the truth about his calls to the Russian ambassador. That broke uh, late on Friday, uh, the information that, uh, oh, what do you know? We tap pretty much everybody's phone, including the Russian ambassadors, and we're able to go back and listen to the uh, w what the conversation was. And they find out that, in fact, Michael Flynn had talked to the Russian ambassador about uh, about U.S. sanctions against Russia before they had come before the Trump administration had come into office. Trump was asked uh, on Friday about that. He said, I don't know about that. I haven't seen it. What report is that? These are actual uh, direct quote. I didn't have time to grab the audio. What report is that? I haven't seen it. I'll look into that. Trump told the uh, members of the press on the plane as if he had no idea what they were asking him about. 
What conversations between Flynn and the Russian ambassador are you referring to? Never heard of them. Well, apparently he did. He had heard of them, at least according to the White House press secretary today. Spicer said that the president and a small group of senior aides were, in fact, briefed in late January after the Justice Department informed Don McGahn about Flynn's calls. The White House Counsel Office uh, uh, conducted a review, according to Spicer, of the uh, of the legal issues and determined that, quote, there was not a legal issue, but rather a trust issue, said Spicer. The president was very concerned that General Flynn had misled the vice president and others. The president must have complete and unwavering trust of the person in that position, said Spicer today. All right. Well, so far, I agree that there is not really a legal issue, at least so far. And we'll talk about that more in a moment. We'll, and we'll see if more develops to change that by the time the show is over. But as of now, the, the Logan Act, which I'll talk about in a second, is, is what seems to be uh, being cited here on, on these legal issues when it comes to what Michael Flynn did. To me, the Logan Act seems pretty weak here as far as a legal issue. But the fact that Flynn lied apparently, about whether he had discussions with the Russian ambassador about U.S. sanctions against them. That seems to be the central point, at least the starting point for all of this. If, if in fact, and that's a still a big if, if, in fact, Flynn actually lied to Pence or to Trump, if he lied about his conversation, uh, then, yes, he would then be vulnerable to blackmail by those, in this case, uh, the Russians, who knew that he actually had a different conversation and who knew that he actually lied to the president and the vice president. Spicer said that uh, the evolving and eroding level of trust as a result of a series of other issues is what led the president to ask for uh, for General Flynn's resignation. Now, note, uh, it's not the erosion of trust at all. It's the possibility of blackmail, stupid, and the fact that he's claiming now he's claiming that uh, uh, the president asked for General Flynn's resignation. That's also up for uh, for grabs. That's also a question that the White House itself uh, seems to have said two different things about today. Just to go back for a second. Yeah. So it was other issues in addition to this one. In other words, that wasn't enough on its own. A series, a series of is- of other issues is what led him to finally ask. So, so what other so issues? It's kind of OK that, hey, he might be compromised and could be blackmailed, vulnerable by the Russians. That's all right. But it took some other there things. Some to other make things it, as well. To put it over the top. Are yeah, well, he, he doesn't even seem to refer to that at all. He just seems to refer to the idea of, uh, well, it was trust. It was uh, we could we can't trust him anymore. Never mind clue? that that he could be compromised. The press secretary repeatedly said that Trump was not concerned with the nature of the conversations that Flynn had with the Russian ambassador. But it was the lack of trust that created a, uh, quote, unsustainable situation. The president has no problem with the fact that he acted, that Flynn acted in accord with what his job was supposed to be, said Spicer. And uh, frankly, I agree. I think that if, uh, you know, the incoming president uh, or his people want to talk to uh, foreign nations about what their policy may or may not be, including overturning the sanctions for whatever reason they think those sanctions should be overturned. To me, 
I think that's fine. That's their policy. Doesn't matter whether I agree with it or whether anybody else agrees with it. As far as I could tell, they weren't getting in the way of what Obama was doing. They weren't stopping, uh, you know, disrupting the sanctions. They weren't getting in the way, keeping him from uh, putting them in place. So if they wanted to talk to Russia and say, hey, we're going to change them, we're going to, you know, roll them back after we're in office, don't freak out. I think that's their right. Now, some people may disagree. And if you disagree, you can send me email if you like. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. But, you know, it's their policy. They can do what they want. And in the uh, weeks before they're about to take office, I, it makes sense to me that they can talk to uh, to foreign leaders about it. However, when you lie about it and when those foreign leaders know that you're lying about it, then you've opened yourself up to blackmail and and bigger problems. But as far as what uh, this idea that, that people are freaking out about uh, General Flynn uh, and claiming that it's a violation of the Logan Act. Let me tell you a little bit about the Logan Act, because uh, I said earlier that I think it's weak. And apparently it is weak because it's been in place since 1799 and no one has ever brought a prosecution based on the Logan Act. A lot of people have cited it. A lot of people have referred to it over the years, including presidents and Congress members and so forth. But it's never actually been prosecuted. And I think there's good reasons why I think they would have uh, I think it would have a difficult time standing up, frankly, to constitutional muster to First Amendment rights in the Constitution. Um, but OK, so the Logan Act was enacted back in uh, 1799. And here's how it came about in the first place. Uh, in 1798, there were tensions between the U.S. and France. President Adams, John Adams at the time, had sent three envoys to France to negotiate those tensions with France. Negotiations were unsuccessful. And then a guy by the name of Dr. George Logan from Pennsylvania, he was a state legislator. He was a pacifist. In 1798, he personally engaged in negotiations with France as a private citizen uh, during this sort of kind of war we were in with France at the time. Here's how it's described uh, in the Emory Law Journal uh, by Kevin Kearney, uh, describing uh, Logan's activities in France at the time. Upon his arrival in Paris, he met with various French officials. During these meetings, he identified himself as a private citizen. He discussed matters of general interest to the French and told his audience that anti-French sentiment was prevalent back in the U.S., Logan stated that he did not intend to explain the American government's position, nor was he there to criticize that of France's position. Instead, he suggested ways in which France could improve relations with the U.S. to the benefit of both countries. He told them that uh, there were pro-British propagandists in the U.S. portraying the French as corrupt and anxious for war, and that they were stating that any friend of France uh, of French principles necessarily was an enemy of the United States. Within days of Logan's last meeting in France, the French took steps to relieve the tensions between the two nations. They lifted the trade embargo that was then in place. They released American seamen who were being held in, uh, in French jails at the time. Nonetheless, it seems that Logan's actions 
Uh, even though they did that, it was not Logan's actions, at least according to Kearney, that were the primary cause of the uh, change in actions by the French. Instead, Logan had merely provided convenient timing for the implementation of a decision that had already been made. So something good actually came of what Logan did in reaching out to the French. Despite his success, however... This angered uh, the opposition back home, the Federalist Party in Congress. They were resentful of the praise that was showered on Logan uh, for what happened, for what came of this. It was showered on uh, Logan by uh, by the uh, Democratic Republican newspapers. They were working together at the time, Democrats and Republicans, I guess, the Democratic Republican newspapers. Secretary of State uh, Timothy Pickering, also from Pennsylvania, responded by suggesting that Congress act to curb the temerity and impudence of individuals affecting to uh, affecting to interfere in public affairs between France and the United States. And the result of that became the Logan Act that was pushed through by the Federalist majority in Congress at the time. Well, that explains it. Logan, by the way, went on to be uh, elected as the Democratic-Republican uh, senator from Pennsylvania. He served from uh, 1801 to 1807, uh, and he tried to get the Logan Act repealed. He was never successful in, in doing that. Um, but uh, it, the Logan Act is very short. It's like uh, one sentence long here. Any citizen of the United States, wherever he may be, who, without authority of the United States, directly or indirectly commences or carries on any correspondence or intercourse with any foreign government or any officer or agent thereof with intent to influence the measures or conduct of any foreign government or of any officer or agent thereof in relation to any disputes or controversies with the United States, or to defeat the measures of the United States shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than three years or both. So if I made a call to an ambassador from another country uh, or an official from another country and gave them my opinions on everything that's going on, apparently I could be held accountable under the Logan Act. And there's a reason why that Logan Act has never been prosecuted, because frankly, it's kind of ridiculous. Surely I'm able to uh, talk to a foreign official and give them my opinions on something, right? As long as I'm not obstructing the actual policy in some fashion, if I'm keeping something uh, from happening. Um, again, I don't know. You may disagree with me uh, or you may not, but I think that... Uh, <laughs> Again, you can go through the history of this Logan Act and uh, people cite it all the time, but it has never actually been. It was brought. There was one indictment that was brought under the Logan Act in 1803, but the prosecution never actually moved forward. So we're basically looking at whether or not this was actually illegal. And when you when you assign some intellectual mm -hmm. scrutiny to this, it doesn't sound like what Flynn, Flynn did was really illegal so Actually, much as maybe bad form. At, at least when I uh, assign intellectual scrutiny, which is, you know, take it for what it's worth. Yeah, that's my opinion. That's however, but, however, what is going on here is the fact that Flynn lied about it, apparently. And we don't yet know if he actually lied about it or if they're just claiming he lied about it. 
Mike Pence, the vice president, went out and, uh, well, we know that uh, Flynn lied about it publicly. But we don't know is, you know, did he uh, lie about it behind the scenes? In fact, we don't even know if he was told to go do this, if he was told by someone, let's say just, you know, randomly, the president of the United States told him to say, hey, go talk to those Russians, go talk to the Russian ambassador, tell them don't worry about these sanctions. We'll roll them back once we're in office. Now, Donald Trump could have done that. That would have been perfectly legal. It would have been, in my opinion, I'm not a lawyer, but perfectly legal for Mike, Michael Flynn to go out and do exactly that and tell the Russians that that was going to be the position of the incoming uh, administration. And it would also be legal, I suppose, if Flynn went out and lied about it. He was asked, did you talk to the Russians about sanctions? He said no, publicly. But if he lied to either Donald Trump or to uh, Vice President Pence, um, and the Russians knew better, knew that, in fact, he had talked to them about this, and there was some concerns about the legality of it, legitimate or otherwise, with the Logan Act, then that would open him up to uh, to being blackmailed, to being blackmailed by a foreign agent. So that's the question. Uh, you know, who knew what and when? In other words, what did he know and when did he know it? David Gergen was pretty much first out of the box uh, last night after the uh, after the story broke at The Washington Post that, in fact, the Department of Justice had told the uh, the uh, Don McGahn, the White House counsel weeks ago that, yes, in fact, General Flynn had talked about sanctions with the Russian ambassador. So David Gherkin responded. Uh, I think this was on CNN last night. Um, he asks. Uh, when did uh, when did Trump uh, know about it and what did he know and, and when did he know about it? He charged this is very serious. Now, keep in mind, David Gergen, former White House advisor to a whole bunch of presidents, Republican and Democratic, including Richard Nixon, by the way. So Gergen knows this stuff, knows what, you know, makes a very serious charge. Uh, he, he's, he invoked the ghost of the Watergate cover-up, as they described over at Raw Story. Uh, Gergen was a former presidential advisor to the administrations of Richard Nixon, Gerald Ford, Ronald Reagan, and Bill Clinton. So he knows serious stuff. Here's what David Gergen said. What's missing from the story so far is the president of the United States. When did he know and when did he know it? If, if they had a report to the legal counsel, the general counsel would have reported, presumably to the president. But it's, it's unimaginable that the White House general counsel would sit on it and not tell anybody else in the White House. At the minimum, we would tell the chief of staff. And it would, I, in every White House I've ever known, it would go to the president like that. This is very serious stuff. And you've got to, you, if you're told that your national security advisor is potentially vulnerable to blackmail by the Russians, that is extremely serious. So the question becomes, did Michael Flynn call the Russian ambassador on the instructions of the president? What, what was his role in all this, and why hasn't he acted before now? Good questions. Good questions. Uh, why hasn't uh, he acted before now? Why, why did it take this long for Flynn to, uh, to resign? as he did last night. Why did it take this long for Donald Trump to even admit he knew anything about this at all? Republican Senator Lindsey Graham today was asking a similar question. Uh, who else in the White House knew about this? 
Graham said uh, today that he wants to know if somebody on President Donald Trump's transition team directed somebody. I wonder who that would be. Somebody who directed uh, uh, Flynn, the now former national security advisor, to discuss sanctions uh, during a call with a Russian ambassador to the United States. Here's Lindsey Graham. Well, I guess the first thing I want to say about General Flynn is that I served with him in Afghanistan. He's been in uniform most of his adult life, and I think he's uh, a terrific military officer, served our country well. But apparently it got to the point of where uh, the vice president believed that General Flynn misled him about a conversation with the Russians, which uh, led to his uh, demise as national security advisor. Really what I want to know is I haven't seen the transcripts. I don't know what we're talking about. What did General Flynn say to the Russian ambassador about lifting sanctions? Did he say anything at all, or is this just being spun by the media? So I think Congress needs to be informed of what actually uh, General Flynn said to the Russian ambassador about lifting sanctions. And I want to know, did General Flynn do this by himself, or was directed by somebody to do it? Well, and that is an important question. Do you believe at this point, Senator, that Flynn misled the White House, or do you think that he was authorized to talk sanctions with Russia before President Trump took office? I'd have a hard time believing that General Flynn would get on the phone with a Russian ambassador and suggest that, don't worry, we will, go, we, we will revisit this when we get to be president in terms of executive sanctions. Uh, without some understanding that the administration be sympathetic to it, to the idea. Now, I may be wrong. Maybe he did this in a rogue fashion. Maybe General Flynn went rogue, but uh, that's the <laughs> question I need to know. I don't know. Uh, he's, he's a pretty uh, strong-willed fellow, but I think most Americans uh, have a right to know whether or not this was a General Flynn rogue maneuver or was he uh, basically speaking for somebody else in the White House? Well, we've got the transcripts. Uh, at some point, I suspect uh, there will be a call to release those transcripts. That was a Republican Senator uh, Lindsey Graham suggesting that uh, someone told that this was the policy, again, the policy of the Trump transition team. Uh, which it seems to me, if they had just told the truth about that policy, they wouldn't be in this mess. Again, it's uh, not the crime. It's the cover up again. Right, because all of this comes in the context of the questions around whether or not Russia had any interference in our election, what the nature of that interference was, what kinds of influence they were trying to do. And in the absence of a full and comprehensive investigation into that, all of these questions are just going to continue to linger about how much is Russia involved with directly with the Trump administration. Uh, and again, there's nothing wrong with Russia being involved with the Trump administration. But there is something <clears throat> wrong with them trying to influence in ways that are uh, less when than people become transparent. Exactly. It's about transparency. And when people become compromised, you know, I have been, frankly, uh, less than impressed, at least with the evidence that has been put out about Russia trying to influence the election. Well, they put but out a lot of conclusions, but not a lot of evidence. Uh, yeah, like none. But that said, um, <clears throat> when the uh, information about the dossier, the supposed dossier uh, on Donald Trump and the personal things that he did in Russia, uh, again, I don't care what he did uh, in, in Russia in that regard. It doesn't sound like they were illegal things. I don't know if, well, maybe uh, prostitution is illegal in, uh, in Russia. I don't know. But my point is, um, 
it's it's the ability for him to become compromised. You can't have a president of the United States who is not transparent, who is making decisions based on stuff that the public doesn't know. Is he making this decision with or about Russia because he thinks this is the best policy for the U.S.? Or is he making this policy because he's, he has been compromised in some way? We don't know. And that's why transparency matters. That's why, you know, not releasing his tax return matters. <clears throat> now, that was uh, Lindsey Graham uh, speaking there. And, of course, he was an opponent uh, for a short time of Donald Trump's during the presidential race. Uh, so maybe he's got a dog in the hunt. Maybe he don't like uh, uh, Donald Trump all that much. But he was he's not the only one today. The Senate's second ranking Republican along with other Republican senators, are also now calling for an investigation into the connections between Trump and Russia, and they want National Security Advisor Michael Flynn to testify. Again, these are Republicans now calling for this. Senator John Cornyn has called for an investigation into Trump's ties to Russia even before Flint resigned. He told reporters today that the Senate standing committees with oversight of intelligence need to investigate Flynn. Senator Roy Blunt of, uh, of Missouri, he's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He told uh, in, in a radio interview, he said that uh, an investigation needs to happen. He said, I think everybody needs that investigation to happen. And the Senate Intelligence Committee again, that I serve on, has been given the principal responsibility to look into this, and I think we should look into it exhaustively so that at the end of this process, nobody wonders whether there was a stone left unturned. Even Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell has said late today, just before air, that uh, he believes it's, quote, highly likely the Senate Intelligence Committees will investigate former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn's discussions with the Russian ambassador. He said, I think the fundamental question for us is uh, is what our is our involvement in it and who ought to look at it. And the Intelligence Committee is already looking at Russian involvement into our election. As Senator Blunt has indicated, it's highly likely they will want to look at this episode as well. They have the jurisdiction to do it, said Mitch McConnell, the Republican uh, leader. Yeah, but will the investigation, if they hold one, mm -hmm. will that be public? Will it be, be behind good closed question. doors? Yep, good question. Congressman Peter King from New York said that Trump should be asked if he directed Flynn to talk with Russian officials. He said, I think that uh, that that should be asked to the president of the United States. Again, Republican Congressman Peter King. Senator Richard Burr, the chairman of the uh, Intelligence Committee in the Senate, uh, told reporters he hadn't made a decision yet on whether Flynn should testify at that committee. Oh, he'll be testifying. Don't you <laughs> worry. He will be testifying. And I think you're right, Desi. They're going to try to keep that testimony behind closed doors if they can. But I believe well, they he will definitely claim national be security and say, yep. "Oh, we can't talk about this in public." No. Uh, so far, the uh, the response from those Republicans who are really trying to uh, tamp this down somehow, including Trump, uh, they're calling for an investigation into the leaks over this information instead of the actual information itself. Who's leaked this, and why? That's the that's the bigger problem. I think uh, Trump uh, said in a tweet this morning, the real story is who leaked it. Trying to get them to chase a rabbit. Yes, that's the real story, Mr. President. 
So, uh, and then there's the, uh, do we have time? Yeah, let me do this before I get to the break here. Uh, there's the, the White House communications mess around all of this. Recall that, uh, as noted at the top of the show, Sean Spicer has now, the White House press secretary, has now said that the president asked for Flynn's resignation. But just an hour or two before that, claiming that she herself had spoke to Donald Trump about this earlier in the day. White House advisor Kellyanne Conway offered, uh, I think, a completely different story, if I understand what she's saying here in this interview with uh, on, on the Today Show with NBC's Matt Lauer. She was claiming that Flynn resigned on his own. And this was after yesterday uh, saying that Flynn, Conway had said that Flynn enjoyed the full confidence of the president just yesterday. That was prior to the story last night that the uh, DOJ had warned the White House weeks ago about all of this. Today, Conway could not answer the question of why, if in fact the White House had been involved weeks ago, uh, why they allowed Flynn to continue on for almost a month thereafter as the head of the National Security Council, even after the Department of Justice had warned about him that he could be open to blackmail. So if, in fact, uh, Flynn, as has been suggested by the White House and many in the media, that he lied to the president and the vice president about these discussions with the Russian uh, ambassador, that's what Pence has said publicly. That's what Flynn has said publicly. Um, why did he... Uh, well, why did he uh, first lie? Did he actually lie? Uh, and why did the White, no White House not uh, let him go once they found out that they lied, if in fact he lied? Matt Lauer here in this clip charges that Conway's response to the question is basically uh, is basically nonsense, as she was suggesting that Trump would have kept Flynn on even longer had Flynn himself not resigned which is contrary to what Spicer said later that the president asked him to resign. Here, here's this weird conversation. Had he not resigned, the president would continue with him as national security advisor, even though he misled the vice president and the administration about the well, contents of that call? That fact is what became unsustainable, actually. I, I think misleading the vice president really was uh, the key here. And I spoke with the president this morning. He asked me uh, to to speak on his behalf and, and to reiterate that uh, Mike Flynn had resigned. He decided that he that the situation had become unsustainable for him but wait here. A second. And of course, you're, the president accepted that resignation. You're saying that was the straw that broke the camel's back, but the White House knew about that last month when the Justice Department warned the White House that Mr. Flynn or General Flynn had not been completely honest in characterizing that conversation with the Russian ambassador. And he, they even went further to say that as a result of that dishonesty, he was at risk for blackmailing by the Russians. Well, that's that's one characterization. <laughs> but the fact is that General Flynn continued in that position and was in the presidential daily briefings, was part of the leader calls as recently as yesterday, was there for the prime minister's visit from Canada yesterday. That's not a good thing, and, Kelly. Uh, as time wore on, obviously <laughs> the situation had become unsustainable. Kelly, and that, Gen that, General Flynn. That makes no sense. Last month, the Justice Department warned the White House that General Flynn had misled them. And that as a result, he was vulnerable to blackmail. And, and, and at that moment, he still had the complete trust of the president? Matt, I'm telling you what the president has said, which is that 
uh, he's accepted General Flynn's resignation and he wishes him well and that we're moving on. There are th at least three candidates, very strong candidates that will be considered for a permanent position here. Obviously, General Keith Kellogg is the acting national security advisor starting today and the president is moving forward. Oh, my God. Uh, yeah. This is madness. This is insane. She uh, she's making no sense at all. So, you know, and, and of course, that that whole dog did not hunt, uh, so to speak, for another uh, Watergate reference there, I think. Um, and it, an hour or so later, Spicer admitted that it was Trump, uh, that Trump did know about it for weeks, that uh, Trump asked uh, Flynn to resign. You know, whether Spicer is telling the truth or not there. No. Who knows? Who knows? He has no credibility. But since he says now that Trump knew, the question is, OK, then why didn't he take any action on it for weeks? When did he learn? What did he learn? What did he know about it? What did he do about it? By the way, the government ethics office uh, today in other news, went on to recommend that the White House investigate Kellyanne Conway's endorsement of Trump, uh, Ivanka Trump's uh, clothing line today. Uh, I suspect the White House won't be investigating that. What a mess. It is not the crime. It is the cover-up. And this uh, cover-up is uh, getting really crazy really quickly. Got to take a break. We'll be back with more Bradcast right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the Bradcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Yeah. Open your eyes, look up to the skies and see. This is madness. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Brad Blog. Dot com. Uh, it's not the crime, it's the cover-up. That's one thing to keep in mind. And here's another thing to keep in mind. Tweets have consequences. Uh, the lawsuit by Washington State and uh, Minnesota challenging Donald Trump's travel ban will proceed as an appellate court considers a preliminary injunction in the case, uh, according to a federal uh, judge ruling the uh, Justice Department had wanted to put this case on hold. The uh, the the stay. Well, the, the Justice Department had wanted to put the case on hold, the entire thing on hold, while the Ninth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals decides whether a larger 11-judge panel should review a government request to allow the ban. You'll recall the huge news from last week that a a three-judge panel on that court, had including uh, a George W. Bush-appointed judge, had unanimously rejected Donald Trump's uh, executive order for a travel ban or at least rejected reinstating it until there was an actual trial on the merits. 
The original decision was by U.S. District Judge James Robart, also a George W. Bush appointee. He had originally uh, issued a um, temporary restraining order on that executive order that halted the ban, and then those three judges uh, agreed that uh, Robart had it right. Um, the states uh, say that the uh, the process to go ahead and have a, a full hearing, a full trial on the merits, to have the uh, to do discovery on the issue, to find out how this order came about, that moving ahead with that process would not interfere with uh, the, the appellate court if they decided to review it, if the entire 11 judge panel on the Ninth Circuit decided to uh, to review it. Judge Robart, the district judge, directed both sides to prepare their arguments on whether Trump's travel ban should be permanently blocked or not. Washington and Minnesota argued that formal evidence gathering should begin immediately in this case. They said in their brief that given the gravity of the state's constitutional allegations here and the White House's stated national security concerns and the public's interest at stake, the states respectfully submit that discovery should proceed without delay. Michelle Bennett from the Justice Department, the lawyer suddenly said, uh, there, there, there was no rush here. We don't need to speed this up. Take your time. There's no rush. She asked Robart to stick with a, a, a different schedule that gives the government until April 3 to file a response to the state's complaint. They they haven't even filed that response yet. Robart said that he was, quote, surprised by that statement since the president had said he wants to, quote, see you in court. <laughs> so the judge actually referred to Donald Trump's tweet, which came uh, within minutes of that decision last week when he said, see you in court. To the judges who in were court. already in court. Uh, now uh, the judge has said, OK, that's great. We'll see you in court. Come on in. D come on in. This case can proceed apace. So suddenly uh, the White House is not in the, such a huge rush for some reason or another to uh, to move forward with this case. Go figure. Maybe they have other things on their mind. In any event, it's a good thing we've got the courts and it's a good thing. Uh, that we have the, um, the the people, the people protesting, showing up at meetings, uh, at, at these town hall meetings, uh, raising hell. Uh, yeah. Uh, and also, by the way, thank God for the media. You never hear me say that, but uh, they are the media and the people here and the courts and the public protests are actually doing a good job. This has been a uh, I think Bill Maher said uh, this has been a good week for the resistance. The folks who are showing up at these town hall meetings, uh, uh, you know, are scaring the hell, frankly, out of their uh, out of their Congress members. And that's a good thing that they are being overwhelmed because uh, right now it is the people, it is the courts, it is the media that are holding uh, holding things back from what they could be from full authoritarian nightmares, frankly, for now. Anyway, that could all change with one terror attack or one war. Uh, but for now, thank God for the courts. Uh, this is why it's so important to stop the uh, stolen Supreme Court by being filled uh, by a nominee of uh, Donald Trump's, in my opinion. But for now, the resistance is working. Because if it was left up to uh, just the Republicans, for example, in Congress, uh, they just confirmed uh, Steve Mnuchin after we went off air uh, last night. He's a former Goldman Sachs banker. 
They confirmed him to be the Treasury Secretary late on Monday by a vote of 53 to 47, pretty much along party lines, except for West Virginia Senator Senator, uh, Joe Manchin, who voted, as usual, with the Republicans. But it was a 53 to 47 vote uh, for Mnuchin to become Treasury Secretary. uh, Mnuchin was also Donald Trump's top campaign fundraiser. So raising funds... (laughs) Pays off. Buy yourself a cabinet <laughs> position. Yep. That's what Betsy DeVos did. That's what Mnuchin did. Um, during the uh, debate about Mnuchin's credentials, uh, New York Times notes that Democrats argued that his experience on Wall Street exemplified corporate malpractice that led to the 2008 financial crisis. And indeed it did. Um, he was a part of the cadre of corporate raiders that brought our, econo- our economy to its knees said Senator Robert Menendez, Democrat of New Jersey, during the uh, floor fight on Monday. Senator Ron Wyden of Oregon referred to Mnuchin as the foreclosure king. Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth uh, described him as greedy and unethical, whether illegally foreclosing on thousands of families, which he did, skirting the law with offshore tax havens or helping design tactics that contributed to the 2008 financial crisis. Steve Mnuchin made a career and millions of dollars pioneering increasingly deceptive and predatory ways to rob hardworking Americans of their savings and their homes, said Senator Duckworth. Well, so much for draining the swamp in case there was Anyone who had any, you know, I can't even imagine that anyone who voted for Donald Trump on the basis that he was going to clean house could possibly be looking at this and and thinking, oh, yeah, that's that's what uh, that's what we knew we were going to get a whole bunch of Goldman Sachs bankers as cabinet officials uh, who, who committed fraud during the foreclosure crisis. Uh, yeah, that's that's who we wanted to take things over during the hearing. Democrats on the committee accused Mnuchin of lying uh, when he said that one West Bank had not engaged in uh, a robo signing of uh, foreclosed mortgages when he was uh, head of one West Bank. The Democrats on the committee twice boycotted uh, a vote on his confirmation in committee, which led Republicans to simply suspend the rules. Breach protocol, as the New York Times describes it, uh, in order to push uh, Mnuchin's vote to the full Senate on their own without any Democratic votes in uh, in in the Finance Committee. Senate also voted in favor of uh, David Shulkin on Monday to lead the Department of Veterans Affairs. That was a 100 to nothing vote. That was the first time we've seen that in this uh, in this Senate. Shulkin is a holdover from the Obama administration. Oh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> okay. Dr. Shulkin is uh, currently the department's, uh, the Veteran Affairs Department's Undersecretary of Health and was approved by a unanimous vote. Uh, things could get even crazier later this week when uh, Andrew Puzder uh, is up for his committee hearing, if he actually comes up for his committee hearing uh, for his appointment as depart- at the Department of Labor. I don't know if Puzder is ever actually going to get there. We'll see. He's got a lot of problems and a lot of disclosure issues. And even that one uh, might be even a bridge too far for even Republicans. We'll see. But uh, a good week so far for the resistance, as insane as this is all getting. Come back. Take a quick break. Come back with the Green News Report and more on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. (laughs) 
Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free broadcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds, and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com donate to help us out today. Yeah, we are melting. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Uh, we're melting uh, from uh, heat in Australia, <laughs> from uh, rain in California. Uh, save your voice there, Des, uh, because uh, we've got a couple of follow-ups uh, from today's Green News report that I want to get to afterwards. So let's get to it. Buckle up, our latest Green News report. The Orville Dam, the nation's tallest just north of Sacramento, now at record levels. Its emergency spillway in danger of failing and unleashing uncontrolled floodwaters on towns below. California dodges a bullet for the moment at Oroville Dam. This is a wake-up call that we've got uh, deferred maintenance needs that literally put people's lives at risk. U.S. not prepared for climate impacts on infrastructure. Judge rejects tribe's request to halt Dakota Access Pipeline construction. Plus, do not be in a position where you may find yourself in front of a fire um, because you won't survive it. Extreme heat brings extreme fire danger to Australia. All of those stories and Desi with a cold straight ahead. From Bradblog.com, I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. Stand by for six minutes of independent green news, politics, analysis and snarky comment. Do you believe in science? Because I do. <laughs> Republican congressman versus 10-year-old girl at town hall meeting. I do support an all-of-the-above energy strategy, and I do think coal is an important part of that. 10-year-old girl winning. This is your Green News Report. Okay, Desi Doyen, I know we've got a lot going on today. I know you're fighting that cold. Yeah. Uh, but in the meantime, up in the Dakotas, bad news for the uh, Native Americans fighting the pipeline up there. Yes, and yet another blow to Native American tribes. A federal judge has rejected a request by the Standing Rock Sioux Tribe and the Cheyenne River Sioux Tribe for a temporary injunction to halt construction of the Dakota Access Pipeline near their reservations in North Dakota, which the tribes say threatens their sacred sites and water supply. That same judge will hear the tribe's broader lawsuit later this month. Meanwhile, it looks like California has dodged a bullet for now. The threat of a breach at the Oroville Dam in north-central California, the tallest dam in the United States, has eased. That's according to state officials. But a mandatory evacuation on Sunday for nearly 200,000 residents below the dam remains in effect. After five years of historic drought, a series of storms have filled the reservoir above capacity for the first time in its 50-year history. Emergency water releases to reduce pressure on the dam have seriously damaged 
launched its two spillways, which now threatens to undermine the entire structure's integrity. Yeah, I think the key there is for now. With uh, rains coming in, uh, this is still a very precarious situation. Yes, it is. And there's a short window of opportunity to make emergency repairs before more storms and the spring snowmelt arrive. That's according to the acting director of the State Department of Water Resources, Bill Croyle. We're working um, to really uh, dig down into the reservoir and move as much water out of that reservoir so we have space for the storms that we expect to um, come in as well as the snow runoff later this spring. Environmental advocacy group Friends of the River and the Sierra Club had warned the Bush administration and the state about this exact scenario occurring today. They did that 12 years ago. But the state water agencies were reluctant to pay the estimated $100 million price tag for the upgrades, so federal regulators didn't require them. In an interview on the broadcast, Friends of the River Executive Director Eric Wesselman urged that once this crisis has passed, it's time to address longstanding infrastructure issues. Take these lessons learned and, um, and start taking action to shore up our infrastructure to make sure that communities are protected and people are protected, as well as you know, the rivers. Um, and the fish and wildlife that call them home that was blown out by these massive releases out of Oroville. You know, I'm really tired of these uh, these folks, these environmentalists and so forth, giving warnings about these things, being ignored, and then years later, once it's too late, being proven right. And speaking of advance warning, climate change also plays a role, not just lurching California between the extremes of drought to deluge, but also because warmer California winters mean much of this precipitation is falling as rain, not snow. And that's also impacting the state's billion-dollar commercial salmon fishing industry. Because if it was snow as opposed to rain, it wouldn't fall all at once, or at least it wouldn't fill up the reservoir all at once. Right. Meanwhile, it's summer down under, and Australia is again facing a record heat wave and catastrophic fire danger, with fire officials warning conditions for the next week are similar to, if not worse than, the conditions that led to the deadly catastrophic bushfires in 2009. New South Wales Deputy Fire Commissioner Rob Rogers warned residents in affected areas to just leave. The simple message to the community in those areas, particularly affected by catastrophic fire conditions, is do not be in a position where you may find yourself in front of a fire, um, because you won't survive it. And a new report from from climate tracking group Carbon Brief concludes that based on current observed trends, the risk of megafires like those in Australia is projected to increase around the world as the climate warms. Well, it's starting to seem like this whole climate change thing may not be a hoax by the Chinese after all. I don't know. Just looking at evidence. But, you know, ignore me. For much more on all of these stories and the ones we couldn't get to, please check out our website, at greennews.bradblog.com. Don't forget, you can download our reports anytime via Stitcher, TuneIn, or iTunes. Find us and follow us and share us on the Facebooks and the Twitters at Green News Report. I'm Brad Friedman. And I'm Desi Doyen. And this has been your Green News Report. I hate to be needy, selfish and greedy, but please pay attention to me. Don't you just hate being right all the time? Well, you know, I got an email on that that I want to read in a second, but we, we do have an update uh, now concerning the evacuations out of uh, the Oroville Dam area and those 200,000 
that have been evacuated over the last couple of days? Yes, just this afternoon, Yuba and Sutter County have changed the emergency evacuation order to an evacuation advisory. That means that people are allowed to return home now, but they are supposed to remain, as they say, quote, on a heightened level of awareness in case the situation should change, which it could still. They've essentially lowered the lake level by using the concrete spillway. They've lowered the lake level 12 feet. They're trying to get it to 50 feet down below the top of the level. because there is another storm system coming. Before com- the other huge, storm system comes in, yeah. We're talking about at least a week of rains that are going to start in the next day or two up there. So they need to lower that lake or else right. they're going to run into the exact same problems that uh, led and to this in the And they believe place. at the rate that they're going that they can do that. So keep your fingers crossed. Fingers are crossed. Um, so, yeah, when it comes to uh, what I had mentioned there in the Green News report about, you know, ignoring the, the, the lefties and the hippies and the environmentalists and the tree huggers until yes. it's too late. Uh, just got this uh, email from Tony B. in, uh, in North Hollywood. Uh, he writes, uh, hi, Brad, you have a great show. I listen every day. Best way to get me to Yay. read one of your emails, <laughs> by the way. Just start that way. But, oh, no, 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 but, no, no, no. Actually, okay. this time there's Yay. not. Normally there's a but after that. He said, uh, if you really want to get a scare, which I don't, Tony B., but he <laughs> says, if you really want to get a scare, research the origins of the Orville Dam and how much opposition there was to building it in the first place. It's built, apparently, he says, on an active earthquake fault. Uh, he says it was the lefties and the hippies that protested even building the dam. Eventually it was built, and now we are worried about too much rain. God forbid there would now be an earthquake that would damage the entire dam. Excellent reporting on the Oroville Dam. Take care, Tony B., North Hollywood. He says, uh, I grew up in Sacramento and remember all of the protests and the name-calling that went on before the dam was built. Oh, wow. Yeah, and you know, dams are a an ecological nightmare, and they're really not really recommended anymore. But for what they're worth, dams and the entire water system that California built has made Southern California possible. So, you know, on the one hand, you have these Except incredible... Except for all the deaths, <laughs> the tens of thousands who were killed in the St. Francis Dam uh, uh, disaster that nobody, like nobody even here in California knows about back from 1928. Oh, I don't know if it was tens of thousands. I believe it was tens of thousands. thousands. But but the point being, though, however, that there is so much economic activity and so much infrastructure that made much of America's GDP, gross domestic product, possible, that has been a, a big plus on that side. But on the other side, we are now working on dismantling dams and trying to find better ways of delivering water and managing water. Also, by the way, the the energy that we get from the hydroelectric uh, power from that dam and its eight generators, although uh, just two years ago, pretty much that entire reservoir was completely empty. I don't even believe that the generators worked because yeah. we keep going from drought that is a drawback a for climate change because drought means that if the hydroelectric dam can't run, you got no electricity. You cannot rely on them anymore. I got to get out. My thanks to Desi Doyen, our producer. Take care of your voice, Des. Uh, and uh, to you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It is greatly appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it uh, for free, as ever, over at bradblog.com, where we hope you'll consider stopping by bradblog.com donate. To help Desi and I do whatever it is we do over your public airwaves and to buy her some more cold medicine. (laughs) 
You can drop me email. I'm bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find, follow, and share me on the Facebooks and the Twitters at the Brad Blog. Until we meet again, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. <laughs> <laughs>